I'm Michael Shaw. And I'm Michelle Walter. And this is The Climate it's not Crisis. It's time now to speak about climate change and what's driving these events when this fire season is going to go for months. So do we just simply get gagged? Because I think that's what's happening. Some people want the debate gagged because they don't have any answers. Um, the Grenfell fire in London, people talked about the cause from day one. Train crashes, they talked from day one. Um, and it's okay to say it's arsonists' fault or pretend that the Greenies are stopping uh, hazard reduction burning, which simply isn't true, but you're not allowed to talk about climate change. Well, we are because we know what's happening. And so are we. That's the powerful voice there of Greg Mullins from the Emergency Leaders for Climate Change, an ex-New South Wales Fire and Safety Commissioner and the man, a man with over 50 years' experience in the field. He said all that in response to the PM's call in the height of the fires up this way, that this was no time to be having the climate debate. So we're not here on this show to debate the science, as, as we think it's overwhelmingly clear. Rather, we're here to talk about what the climate crisis means to us personally and as a community, how we might start to meet the issue emotionally <clears throat> and practically. Because if we're not free to talk about the climate crisis outright, then we will be unable to prepare as individuals, community or as a nation. To e and we won't be even be able to begin to adapt and prepare for the changes that are both already arriving and still coming in a larger way. I guess it makes us inner city lunatics. Even in Mullumbimby, there's yeah, inner city lunatics. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start the show just telling um, you a little bit about ourselves and why we're actually doing this show mm. on such a strong topic. And we were talking about it and it, uh, we sort of both had the experience of a particularly strong moment when the climate crisis wasn't just a, another issue out there that you know you may be for or against or bothered by it became something that we perceived as a very real threat mm. as perhaps the biggest issue that we're facing in our lifetime mm. so when was that wake-up moment for you Michael well I had a underlying feeling about the environment really probably since I was a child some yeah. sense of anxiety or, or that something's not right or I could see a problem anyway that grew but I was sort of pushing it down and pushing it down and uh, at the time I was going to um, Catherine Ingram's Dharma mm. Dialogues mm. and um, your beautiful spiritual teacher down in Lennox Head mm. and I went and had a one-on-one uh, -on -one session with her because I, I, I mean, I probably wasn't thinking this at the time, but when I think back on it, really, I was hoping that she might say something expansive or comforting, or comforting <laughs> that I might sort of be able to see past these feelings or put them in a certain way that I would be able to open up and expand in some kind of <laughs> way. Anyway, Catherine being Catherine, because she's got a very sharp eye for the truth. Uh, really just named it exactly as it was. I feel like she pulled the curtains back mm. and she just let me look at it directly. Mm. And I, what I think I understood in that meeting with her is that some of the distress, not all of it, but mm. some of the distress was because I knew something, mm. but I was pretending it didn't exist. I was pushing it away and pretending it didn't exist. So there's nothing Catherine could do about the... Uh, ecological environmental crisis mm. but she could do something about that bit which was like you know it mm. see it yeah. and once that had happened for me mm. 
Once that moment had come, really my life could never be the same again. I couldn't go back to living the same life again. And, and I was lucky enough to be able to have many conversations with her in that crossover period. Mm. But that was a very crucial point for me and led to many other changes. And mm. um, I do remember that because you tried to have many conversations with me over the past two years, conversations that I just couldn't hear, I couldn't listen to. They were just, they, were, they just felt too threatening. And... The, the amount of information and um, reports that have come out, you know, really since the IPCC report in October last year, since then I have not been able to escape actually really... Mm, like everybody, at, I think. Absolutely, yeah. you know, and Jem Bendel's paper, Deep Adaptation, um, A Map for Navigating Climate mm. Change, and Catherine's paper, Facing Extinction. Yes, of course. Mm. These papers outlined so clearly the scientific evidence and a kind of the consequences so it's not just been hit by a number of different facts about climate change they're also talking about well this is the science so what does that mean for us and that's when i stopped avoiding the climate crisis and it started to really land and i just started to to almost it's like put down whatever I had been consumed with in my life, whatever I had been busy with about what I wanted or where, what I wanted to do suddenly seemed irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And I just found myself going, what does this climate crisis mean for me? What does it mean for my loved ones? Mm. What does it mean for the earth? Mm. What does it mean for the animals? Well, well and, you know, for, you know, for me... Yeah, you, you made an even bigger, <laughs> more dramatic, more dramatic... Well, I, 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 I think I got very caught... I was very... I felt very caught up in a lot of sadness for quite a yeah. long time. Yeah. When I came into some action, the first action that came for me was I wanted to sell my house so yeah. that I could make a documentary about it. And look, what does a documentary fix? I don't know, but yeah. that I had to do something. That's what the action that came through me was to do. So I sold my house. I've just got back from overseas interviewing some people and um, we might talk about it. We should go so to we a song and we'll, we'll come back and talk about that. Yeah. overseas to make a documentary where he interviewed a number of key players in the um, climate we don't want to call it debate of course climate but crisis climate crisis um, and one of those was Darj Darjamal Darjamal yep. yeah and Darjamal um, wrote a book called The End of Ice Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning um, in Climate Disruption in the face of yep in the face of climate disruption yep. Um, which I've only half read because it is such a strong book. Yeah, it's a know. strong book. I, look, I, I I would describe it as a climate classic if there was yes. if there was that sort of um, category. Yeah. It's one of those. I think Catherine's extended essay fits in there as well. Yeah. But it uh, does book was very very powerful, yeah. and 
and he's a he's a um, journalist and quite a researcher. So this is a book where he's he's really done the work. He's gone to the yeah. front lines. He's visited the places mm. where climate crisis is hitting most, and he's speaking to the experts. Mm. So you mm. know, there's it's quite mm. a strong and confronting read. Mm. Well, I just want to talk about for a minute, like who this guy is, mm. uh, because it's one thing to read a person's book, yeah. you know, and, and as I said, like that is a book that I think everybody should read. The End of Ice, Dodger mm. Mail's The End of Ice. But this dude, so when America's invading Iraq, uh, you know, when, when, whatever year that was going back, he has this feeling of how wrong that is. So he's, he's a mountaineer. He's written a few articles uh, in his mountain magazines. That's it. And he's up on the mountain and he goes, I have to go to Iraq to write on what's happening in this war from the, part, from the point of view of the Iraqi people. What an incredible man. <laughs> so he goes to Iraq with very little money, mm. no health care, mm. no, he's got no history as a reporter or a journalist. Mm. He's got no connections in the country, right? Didn't he he's even an, have a media pass? He didn't have a media pass and he's a freaking American, right? Mm. Landing himself in Iraq, right? Mm. So as I was often the way... Uh, when these things, you know, when people go out on limbs like that, mm. he meets the right people and he gets connected and um, he ends up winning an Izzy Award for his writings in Iraq. and Which was from the side of the Iraqi from exposing the, what the um, American army was doing over there. and it was quite Which, which sounds, like when you say it now, it sounds obvious enough. But at the time, I don't know if you, people remember what it was like then, no one could write anything mm. about what was going on in, in that country at that time except from the American point of view so so super brave he ended up writing three books about it and he had a grant for a fourth book so this is just a, this is I'm just putting Dar in perspective here he had a grant for a fourth book now you know grants are pretty hard to get when people will want to write books a grant is like a gift from God he had a grant for a fourth book he's written three and he starts being moved by what's happening in the environment and he says, I cannot write that last book. I now need to write about this. Mm. And off he heads, starting to write uh, The End of Ice. Mm. And the thing that's extraordinary about this book is that he travels around. Mm. Uh, he speaks to uh, indigenous people. He travels around to a lot of the hotspots on the planet. Mm. So he, he travelled to the, uh, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Yeah into the Amazon. Um, to the Bering Sea. To the Bering Sea. Talked to the seal hunters the and they were watching as the glaciers are melting <clears> and seeing them, <throat> you know. So he speaks to the indige indigenous elders, you know, who've got basically word of mouth right on the scene. This is what we've seen. This is what our grandfathers lived in. It's not the same now. Mm. So he got that. He also spoke to scientists in those areas that are studying those places, um, uh, Thomas Lovejoy, I think, is the, mm. god, the, the uh, godfather no, of biodiversity in the, in the Amazon. The Amazon, yeah, that was quite fascinating, yeah. actually, to you know just discover how little we know and and how much destruction is already happening. Mm. And of course, at the time you were there, the Amazon was on fire. Yes. So that that was quite scary. Yes. Yes. So um, he was he was a delight to mm. meet. He was a delight to meet as a human being. Um, 
you know, when I headed off to meet him, really, I was just trying to find out more about the environment. I wanted to meet someone who was talking about their environment in the same way as I felt it. But he was just a really delightful, a very inspiring man yeah. to be around. Yeah. What was inspiring? Um, well, the way he lived. You know, and, and the last, when I was there, I think many people know that now, is that Dad Jamal also wrote in, writes in The Guardian. Many people have read him in The and Guardian. Truth out, and on, Truth which Out. Which is a great online um, news source. Yes. So, so he, the, the next movement in his life is, is that that's it for journalism. Yeah. I think he's still going to write some pieces, some occasional pieces for The Guardian uh, with Barbara Cecil. You know, How Then Do We Live? He's been writing a series on that. But um, basically on to the next thing, like where his heart's called. is still around the environmental issue, but I think he's working with Indigenous, uh, with Stan Rushworth, who I also met, but um, that's still brewing. But still just someone who can move so clearly with their heart, uh, yeah. regardless yeah. of the sanity of what other people might think about it. And I also think, you know, someone uh, as brave as that is brave enough to look things right in the face. Yeah, and I was going to ask, and it's the question that I know no one likes to answer, um, and I'm sure Dar didn't want to answer this, but from talking to him, from his research, what impression did you get about how much time we have left? Did he have anything to say about that or what he sees happening? Because mm. I know that he's been quoted as saying that the earth is most likely in a hospice situation. Mm. I mean, that's a conclusion he's written about in his book when mm. he travels around these mm. things. What what mm. did you find when you were there talking to him? Well, look, this opens up quite a big area, I, I think. Know. And um, because one of the things, and I, you know, I, I guess it's one of the one of the aspects of this whole thing that interests me really is that often. You know, if I'm going to say what what he thinks, and I will say in a minute, but people will say, "Oh, well, that's giving into hopelessness. Mm. And you give into hopelessness, and then no one wants to do anything, and it's really negative, And we need to be positive, and we need to imagine, right? Mm. But Da is somebody who recognizes the situation mm. and is full on active. Yeah. So, and he recently had a friend die of cancer when I arrived there, not too long before I arrived there. And he mm. said to me in the interview, he said, when my friend was dying, mm. I didn't go and see him less often. Yes. I didn't care about him less because he was in his last few weeks. I came to see him twice as often. I loved him twice as much. Everything I wanted to say, I said to him, everything, we, you know, all the love that I had to give, I poured into him. Mm. So that's what his relationship is with the planet right now. And uh, in a sense, you know, talking about how long we've got left is, you know, it's, nobody really knows. Yes. But he does feel like the planet's in a hospice situation. Mm. He does feel like... And I think that's important. I mean, now it's um, become a, a lot more on our front door with the fires, mm. you know, that, that is going on around mm. us. There are lots of people in the local community, but in New South Wales, Queensland, in Western Australia, touched by the fires and having to, to mm. face that. Mm. So we're starting to experience some of the ways that the earth is really hurting. Mm. But 
often, like I know when I was reading this stuff and, and reading his book, like last year, earlier this year, I would go down to Byron Bay and swim in the water or bronze and it, it just seemed unreal that actually that there were species dying, that the earth was really suffering because I, a lot, in a lot of ways I couldn't quite see it. But now it's becoming a little bit more tangible, like not being able to have a shower because of water shortages. You know, starting to realise that the earth has limits. You know, we can't get this way of life that we've been living. We can't just keep going. No, no, we can't. And, you know, he does talk about a lot of the changes mm. that are, are baked into the system. Yes. So the, the sea has taken a lot of the temperature rise of yeah. the planet yeah. and there's no cooling down the sea anytime soon. Yeah. But, but uh, also going to your point, of course, we're living like that. Yeah. We're living like that. I agree. It's easy to forget. You walk along Byron, it's yeah. easy to forget. Yeah. But there's a lot of people on the planet that are experiencing Absolutely. it right now. Yeah. There's climate yeah. refugees. You know, there's uh, these things that food shortages, water shortages, these things are actually already occurring. crashing and the tide pulls out it's an angry sea but there is no doubt that the lighthouse will keep shining out to warn a lonely sailor and the lightning strikes and the wind cuts cold through the sailor's bones to the sailor's soul till there's nothing left that he can hold except the rolling ocean but I am ready for the storm Yes, already I am ready for the storm I'm ready for the storm So let's get on to talking about Jem Bendel. Yes. I was super interested um, in this interview for a number of reasons. Mm. Uh, one is um, Jem's paper, the... Um, Deep Adaptation paper. If you mm. haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I mean, it is the paper being called the paper that's scaring a generation because it is so clear. And Jem says he sort of he's been jo- he just joined the dots on the science, and then he came to the realization that um, our civilization is c- crumbling in the face of climate chaos. So really strong thing. Yes, and look, one of the things he said is that scientists in general are very good at creating the dots. Yeah. They get very focused in on their and particular area, area and they, fo- yeah. they create the, and they, they make a dot and mm-hmm. uh, one of the, you know, Jem basically joined the dots. And, you know, Jem's no clown. No, he's uh, just Professor of Sustainability. He's, a professor, yeah. he's spoken to the uh, United Nations mm. on this. Uh, he's got the ear of um, senior people at the, Uni- uh, the European Commission. Mm. So he's not like a lonely scientist out there in some weird, wild world. No. And he's written this paper which outlines what will happen in a sense or, or what is happening with the climate mm. crisis and feedback loops and, and presenting all the evidence. Um, so what was it like to meet him? Well, one of the things that reading that paper did uh, for me personally is that Jem was the first person that I read that directly connected what was going on in the environment with yeah. the with the uh, with the the yeah. likelihood of societal collapse that comes next to it. Yeah. And um, so I just hadn't considered it from that perspective. Yeah. So he goes into look. 
if you know there could be grain shortages so he goes into some of the food issues food issues climate refugees yeah and then he but but jem goes a step further in that he then starts looking at okay let's presume this is going to go down the way that it in all likelihood seems like it's going to go down Mm. so let's have the conversation about how can we adapt what can we do yeah. to start to get ourselves ready personally yeah. as communities? Uh, and, as you know, I'd love to say as a nation, except we're so divided as a nation on this issue and we want to dig up coal, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but how do we get ourselves ready to meet this? So, um, I mean, uh, look, as a case in point, I was in California when the Kincaid fires were on over there. There was some down in LA as well, but I was up in Kincaid. Yeah. 300,000 people uh, were uh, evacuated. Wow. Uh, at that time, was it? Hang on, I'm getting my thing. It was 200,000 people were evacuated. 300,000 people lost power. Okay. Not, not for an hour or two, yeah. but for days. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to be living in a house that was off the grid at that yeah. time. But people around, all the people around us, well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what happens when the power goes down. Mm. Pretty soon, your, your mobile phone runs out of battery. Mm. Yeah, the, the food goes off in the fridge. Mm. You go down to the shops and the shops aren't open and there's no petrol. You can't get petrol. So that was after three days, kinds of questions. And, yes. of course, Jem gets a lot of criticism because people say it's the same way as Dar gets criticised, that he's a doomer. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, somehow if you believe this is going to happen, then you stop doing anything. And I think there's this question of what's going to happen. I mean, no one can answer that question. Mm. But what we can do is be with what is happening. Mm. And, and that's another part of, of Jem's message, you know, and, and Dar as well in terms of being with the earth. But Jem is like being with the, the feelings of like recognising that our way of life has become unsustainable and is destructive. Mm. Whatever is the future holds, we're having to face that there's a big adjustment and change that needs to happen and I know when you were there and this is one thing I was really sad to miss out on yes you were I was jealous let's just name I've been doing a workshop mm. not not you traveling the world <laughs> just like why wasn't I at that workshop but you did the deep adaptation workshop mm. which is based on the work of Joanna Macy mm. who I'm quite a fan of mm. so can you tell us and that was a bit about being uh, with the feelings so I just want to um, because I'm such a fan of Joanna I'm just going to quote her Um, She said in an interview with Jem in June 2019, she has been living with the knowledge that our species is destroying this world since the 70s. So she's 90 now. She says it was evident that people did not lack information. They would just turn away and it was a reluctance to feel the pain of it. Yeah. I mean that's sort of so perfectly put, isn't it? And um, one of the things that we did on the on the workshop mm. with um, Jen, which was great, was uh, Joanna Macy's Truth Mandela. Mm. Now I, I, I know there's, I've done that before actually up mm. here. I know there's many people that use that um, particular technology. Mm. Uh, it's a you know it's essentially um, where you get to step into a you know ritual space and you get to occupy a space of fear, anger. Um, numbness. Numbness or... Um, oh. Fear, anger, sadness. Sadness or some other... Uh, also the space for some other feelings. Yeah, so like get, hope or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Relief. So, so you get to move into the circle and occupy yeah. that space of feeling. And yeah. um, 
it just it, it well it opened up it opened up a lot you know people it gave people a direct access to start feeling and and i think what happens because this subject is so overwhelming i mean this you know, I mean, I fully understand why people want to block this out because it is utterly overwhelming. And for me personally, and I think this is true for you too, when I get a chance to feel the sense of overwhelm, that's part of me unwinding my overwhelm. That's how I unwind, step through it and start to see and act differently. If I'm trying to, if I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm pushing overwhelm away, that usually just gives me a headache (laughs) a sore body and i can't and i can't think so that particular technology i think it was excellent among quite a few good things yeah 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 Yeah, interesting um and i'm aware as we're talking that there's listeners out there with their own emotional reactions and responses you know to Mm. to this show and and Mm. and to the news as well Mm. and and i'm sure you know, the climate uh, crisis news is everywhere, mm. you know, in that sense. So, it's, you know, I wonder how it is, you know, how it is for others and how little we have in place. And that's mm. one of the things that Jem is involved in is sort of establishing this conversation. He's like, we need to start having conversations. Yes, yes, he and, does. And he's talking about cross-fertilisation. So politicians with artists and council members and, you know, farmers, farmers like we need to get together and have these conversations mm. and be able to be there. So we don't have long left. Oh yes, okay. So, yep. um, and I know that you have so much to share about um, your meetings, and particularly meeting with Stan. Mm. I wonder if you can tell us one of the most precious, precious yeah, moments that you down. had with him. I mean, Stan is quite an amazing character. Yeah, he's an he's he's an interesting guy. Like I, I went to see Stan because he was Dar's mentor really. And Dar was so impressive. I thought, well, I want to get to the source of this. He's a Cherokee elder. He was Uh, given to the uh, Cherokee Indians by his mother when he was five. To his grandfather to to be be raised raised in the traditional ways. Beautiful. Served in Vietnam. Yeah. uh, Badly affected um, by... um, uh, Agent Orange. Agent Orange mm. got the sh- got the shakes. And he's now a lecturer and he teaches um, about about Native American literature. Yeah, and he's written two books. And he's written pretty, two he's books. Pretty amazing man. Uh, uh, pretty a very amazing man, and his book is his book is quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, but there, were, you know, if you, we are short on time, but I was going to boil yeah. this down to a moment. It was, it was sort of this is not something he said, but something that happened yeah. when I was with Stan. So. We did this long interview um, and we just came into his kitchen 
and the, the, these, he has big glass doors that open up to this little sort of um, bit of nature outside and it's sort of in the hills. This place was in the hills. So we're sitting there uh, with the doors open, having a cup of tea after the interview and uh, this deer... walks by and stops, right? (laughs) Right at the kitchen door, looks in, like looks in for, you know, a good 15 seconds. Like we we all just kind of like stopped what we were doing. Like, and he was quite relaxed, this deer, you know? And um, then he moved on. Mm. And Mm. uh, Stan went outside like it was a moment, you know. It was it was, oh, it was one of those. It was one of those moments. So anyway, uh, Stan went outside and um, did a little ceremony oh. and um, sang a song, yeah. uh, and uh, in Cherokee that I couldn't understand. And I asked him at the end of it. I said, "Look, what what was that?" And he said, "Oh, you know, I just not that I sing that every time I see a deer, but um, that just felt like a special moment." And mm-hmm. He said, it, it basically, the meaning of the song is, um, uh, there goes beauty. Oh. <laughs> there goes the feminine. Yeah. Uh, thank you, mama. Yeah. Uh, you know, thank you for this beautiful earth. So, something like that. And I just thought, oh, no, there goes nourishment. Mm. There goes nourishment. There goes beauty. Mm. Um, there goes the feminine. Mm. Thank you, Mama. So, so, How precious. Yeah, there was something. So, there was, I guess it's something in the different way uh, to connect to the land. And he had a lot to say, Stan. Yeah. And um, I, I spoke to him quite a bit about... Uh, what we could learn from um, traditional cultures about what we're facing now, and Absolutely. it's it's much more complex than it sounds, and yeah. probably too complex for a three-minute, two-minute little segment segment here. Yeah, mm. yeah, and I think um, you know he talked um, a lot about post-colonial stress disorder, mm. which I found really interesting mm. term, mm. and just really acknowledging. Um, mm the stress and the trauma that's been um, put with Indigenous people. And actually today, which is Thanksgiving Day in America, yes, that's but for Native American Indian peoples, it's the National Day of Mourning. Mm. So they've been protesting since 1970 about the genocide that's happened mm. and, um, you know, the abuse to their peoples and the yeah. stealing of their land. Well, one of the things that he said that, that really, well, he said many things, but mm. one of the things that really caught my interest was yeah. he said, in the view of his people, mm. we're still in the time of first contact. Ah, uh, said okay. we, we were living here for 10,000 years. Yes. And white people, this is America, white people, you know, came 280 years ago. Yeah. In the big scale of things, this is still first contact. And, and what a contact we've had. The Anthropocene emerges with this yes. whole kind of, you know, Western civilization making contact. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. very interesting in, when you put it in that bigger perspective, mm-hmm. particularly for Indigenous people that have actually lived harmoniously with the earth. Mm-hmm. We can't say the same mm-hmm. of Western 
civilization no. actually and and one of the points he made about this was if you close your mind and heart to uh, the impact of that genocide yeah. I mean that's where we start we close our mind and heart there and then we close our mind and heart to slavery we close our mi- mind and heart to poverty mm-hmm. we close our mind and heart to the earth itself yeah. we keep pushing everything further and further away we get number and number yeah. and we finish up around about where we are right, right now, now. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to share something that I read about from Tich, Tich Nathan. Tich Nathan, Tich Nathan, yes. yeah. Um, and he was asked what we need to do to save our world. And he said, what we most need to do is to hear within us the sounds of the earth crying. Mm. And I think it is that really recognising something's wrong and it's painful to listen to that. It's mm. painful to see it. But the cost of ignoring it is way more painful. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a certain pain I think we have to go through before... Yeah, we can open up into... Yeah, into and feel what actions want to come through us. There's certain listening, a certain deep listening that has yeah. to happen before the actions can come forth. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree with that because it's very easy to go into the doom or denial camp with this climate issue or to become very focused on saving the world and that's very anxiety driven Mm. but giving a bit of space just to really take in what is actually happening Mm. let's expand our vision beyond our Mm. our own individual Mm. selves Mm. into Mm. communities into Mm. what's happening to Mm. the earth and listen and you know for some people that listening might produce music you know i mean this is dar really saying this but you know listen follow whatever that is for you and sometimes it's just stopping i know for me it's just stopping yeah it's It's nothing doing nothing it's like i don't want to engage in Mm. that that whole social thing anymore it's just it's oh i need to just stop Mm. You know, and really take stock of what's mm. happening in my mm. life, my world, what's important, what's mm. not. Perfect, yeah. perfect. Look, we have to wrap it up. Yep. Uh, but, of course, we're not wrapping it up for good because we'll be back again next, next week, week, same time yeah. too. And we have a special guest next week. Um, we're going to be interviewing Amy... Ellen. Ellen from Deep Adaptation Forum, which is based on the work of Jem Bendel. Uh, we'll be talking to her about um, the Deep Adaptation Forum. So yep. there might be something that people want to join. We'll yep. be talking to her about meeting the conflict between people of different opinions on this very uh, huge issue. Yes, and, she's um, also a neuroscientist. And she's a mother. And, and she's, you know, she's brought up her kids talking about this. So there's a number of good things to talk about with Amy next week, same time, 12 to 1, on This is the Climate Crisis. Mm-hmm.